If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 1 through 14. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and, and I have a, a great privilege to be able to look at the Word of the Lord with you. And we believe these words come to us um, through the writing of Nehemiah, but, but more so through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Holy Spirit of God. And so as we read these words, let's hear together the Word of Christ. Nehemiah 4, 1 through 14. Now when Sinbalad heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish, burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, it'll break down. Hear, O God, this is Nehemiah's response, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sinbalad and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls in Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God to set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions, said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open spaces, I stationed people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your home. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been with us over the last few weeks, we have been looking at the book of Nehemiah. And uh, we took a little break last week. We looked at Romans with, with Russell Moore. But I, I, I want to kind of catch us up. And uh, I, I don't mean to belabor this point, but I, I do want to be helpful for you. Because I do think that Old Testament study is so important. So I, I gave you this little sheet of paper. This is kind of like a help how to read the Old Testament. And there's a lot of different ways to look at this. But what I've really done with this is I've kind of 
split the Old Testament up into some parts to kind of help you understand the, the narrative flow, what's going on in the narrative. Of course, the Bible begins in creation with a good creation that God has made to reflect his glory and power and presence. But the creation of God is always distorted by sin. And, and I would actually say that the introduction to the Bible, which is I'm going to call the first 11 chapters of the Bible, is really that story kind of over and over. It's, it's good creation of God. It's the hope of God. It's the, if you will, the, the plan of God being distorted by sin, being broken because of sin. And so the next major movement, starting in Genesis 12, is the formation of a people and the formation of a people that will bring about a very needed redemption from the effects of sin. Again, if, if the introduction was about sin distorts, has ruined what God has created to be good, then there has to be some sort of restoration or redemption of that. And, and the way that that kind of starts is God's going to call the people. He's going to have a people of his own possession that are going to enjoy his presence, that are going to live out his character, that are going to follow his way. And through those people, God will be known and, and the world will be redeemed. And so we see a formation of those people. We see these themes, as you see here, of calling, of God's blessing, of presence, um, and that really goes until about Exodus 1. And I want to speak back to that. But of course, in Exodus 1, we see the people of God in Egypt. So the next kind of big section, and, I, and there's actually a typo here, and this is my fault, but it really should go through Judges. Exodus chapter 2, through the book of Judges, there's an establishment of God's people. This people that God had called, that he began to form, he established them as a holy people. So, of course, we see the narrative of Exodus. The people come out of Egypt. God comes to dwell among them. He gives them his law. He leads them into a promised land. And we see these people being established as the kingdom people of God. And of course, that gets to the third section, which I moved judges over. So now this is going to begin with 1 Samuel. It's going to go Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. And this is really the story of these kingdom people. How, when this kingdom of God had been established, how did they live out when God's law was present among them and his presence was present among them? And they had established this great city, Jerusalem, where his kingdom would be known, his glories would be known. How did that work out? Of course, God gave them kings to rule and to represent them. Now, what's interesting about all of these three sections, and, and this is one of the reasons I moved judges over too, and I'm, again, I'm sorry about the typo, but what's interesting about all of these three sections is they all kind of end badly. Exodus 1, God has formed this people. What's going on with them? They're slaves. They're in Egypt. They're in bondage. The end of the book of Judges, even though God had freed them from the Egyptians, even though he'd given him his law, even though he did really established this people, the book of Judges, if you've ever read it, what is it about? It's about the people of God becoming like the people of Sodom. I think that's really the point of the book. God's chosen people just become like everybody else in the world in need of redemption. And then, of course, the, the kings, the, 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 the kingdom of God is now in exile, taken away from the land, taken away from the presence of God. 
in effect, taken away from the law of God. And that's the next big section of the Bible is the exilic period when the people of God were taken away in exile. And then, of course, we come to where we are today. We're in the post-exilic period, the period after the exile, when the Persians take over from the Babylonians and the Jewish people of God are allowed to return to the land to try and reestablish themselves. Now, on this little sheet here, and this is just a little tool for you, it, it, sometimes it can be confusing when you read the Old Testament because it's like, well, there's all these, there's some narrative books, but there's all these other books like Psalms and Proverbs and these pro those are called the writings or the wisdom literature. And then there's other books like Jeremiah and Malachi, which are called the prophets. And where do those fit in? And again, I don't have time to go through all that, but they, you can draw little lines. They kind of come in the narrative of the story. They're, they're not all in chronological order. They're, they're books that find their way into different slots in the kind of narrative line here. But where we are right now, we're in this post-exilic. We're kind of toward the end of the Old Testament, at least in terms of as the narrative goes. And it's this post-exilic period. The people of God have been away in exile, and they are re-establishing some sort of signs of the kingdom, some sort of kingdom, some sort of presence of God, some sort of temple. If you have remembered, the book of Nehemiah is really the second half of a larger book called Ezra and Nehemiah. And in, in Ezra, we see the first kind of two movements. Zerubbabel goes back to the land, back to the promised land to rebuild the temple. Why? Because the presence of God. If God is going to establish himself and redeem a people, then his presence must be among them. Then in the second half of Ezra, Ezra goes back and begins preaching the law, the, the law of God. Again, why? Because if, if God is going to be known through a people, then his care Character needs to be known through them as they follow his law. And now here's Nehemiah, who was a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, who hears this burden. Again, it can't be overstated the importance of Jerusalem. The Jerusalem lies in ruins. And he goes back to reestablish Jerusalem, this, this great sign of God's kingdom presence, of, of God's glory being known on earth. That's where we are in this redemptive story. Now, I, I spend time here. It is so important that you as Christians understand the redemptive story of God because it is the story that you are now a part of. It's not just some myth that, that helps us kind of understand things. It, it is a redemptive story that we have joined in with. And so it's very, it's very important for us to understand how God has moved through his people in other times so that we can understand how and what he is doing through us. I've said to my children, some of y'all have heard me say this before, but I often say to my kids, you know, the Bible is like your favorite movie. You know, I think I said this a few weeks ago. What, I asked my kids what their favorite movie was. And two of the three said that their favorite movie was The Sandlot, which I took as a parenting win because that's a, that's a pretty good movie. And, um, and I said, you know, the Bible is like we're watching The Sandlot and all of a sudden you see yourself in the movie playing baseball with the guys if you've seen the movie. 
hanging out with, you see yourself in the story. Because that's, that is what scripture is. It's, it's, it, it, you're, you're written into God's greater redemptive work. And it's, you're not just seeing yourself in the story, you're actually living out life in the story. It'd be like actually going and playing baseball with Benny the Jet Rodriguez and going to the pool and going to the fair. You're, you're living this story out. God is showing his glory through a people. And if you are in Christ, you are those people. So it's very important for us to understand how God has done this so we can know how God is doing this, how God is to be doing this through us. And so I want to look at a couple of things with you today as we think about this. First, there's, there's a lot in this story about the nature of opposition, opposition to the, the kingdom work of the people of God. And so three things that I want to look at today. First of all, the opposition to the work of God from the outside. Secondly, opposition to the work of God from the inside. And then third, the awesomeness of God. So I want to look at this first part, opposition to the work of God from the outside. Look at verse 1 and 2 just to kind of help us think about this. We see this theme throughout the whole passage, but look at verse 1 and 2. It says, When Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He said in the presence of his brother and the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? And again, this has been this theme of opposition goes throughout the chapter. So what's going on here? Now, now, Israel had been obviously totally devastated in the exile. They'd been taken away from their land. Their buildings had been destroyed. They were a non-presence, if you will. Now the Persians have taken over everything, but still within Persian rule, there were these tribes, these groups of folks. I have a little map here to help you understand this. So, uh, you can see, for example, the, the, the Ammonite people or the Moabite people or the Arab people over here. And so you have all of the, the presence of these, these tribes or these people that surround the people of Israel or the people of Judah. And, and, and for a long time now, for 70 years now, the Jews haven't been there. There's been no sort of sign of their strength. There's been no sort of sign of their presence. But now they're coming back. A temple's been built. People are coming back to the land. Now a wall is being built. And so it's a great threat to these people. As it says, they are all a people under occupation. But there's a sense of rivalry or competition between them. And so what do they say? What are these feeble Jews doing who do they think they are? We will come in among you and kill you and put you to death. And what we saw two weeks ago, this amazing work of rebuilding the wall that in chapter three, one of the most phenomenal passages of scripture where all of these tribes and all of these different people come together and they unite to, to do so much work, it, it starts to be threatened. This opposition creeps in. Now, Again, as we understand God's redemptive story and our part in it, you need to know that the people of God always face opposition. I mean, think of Noah. He was opposed. Think of Moses. He was opposed. Think of Joshua, David, our Lord Jesus. 
Paul, every person that God has ever used has faced incredible opposition. Even now, of course, believers around the world are facing severe opposition to their faith. In Afghanistan right now, Christians are having to move house to house so they won't be hunted out by the Taliban. And it's not just Afghanistan. Throughout the history of the church, Christians have faced death, have, have faced just incredible persecution. I mean, things, here's stories I've heard of just children of Christian leaders being kidnapped, and they, they've never heard anything else about it. It was just this act of cruelty done to discourage the work of that Christian leader. In less dramatic ways, Christians have been outcasts of society. They've not been able to get work. And, and, and they've been in places where they've had no recourse, no sense of justice to speak back or to, to fight back against these things. Yet even in these places of intense persecution and opposition from outside forces, throughout the history of the church, Christianity has flourished. The work of the Lord has gone forward. In fact, uh, we, I was reminded this week, I was in a conversation with some guys about the book, The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin, if you all ever read that. And, and, you know, over and over the report is, don't pray from persecuted Christians, don't pray that the persecution would stop. Only pray that we would be faithful through it. Through this persecution, we're seeing God's kingdom go forward. God's redemption going forward. God reconciling the world to himself, even in the midst of our persecution, even in the midst of great opposition. So the opposition that we receive as American Christians is very different from the opposition that a lot of the church is receiving now and that a lot of the church has received throughout the history of the world. But it, it still will come. I just want to say this to you. you know, some of you here, you're new believers. Some of you here, you're, you're a young adult believer, and maybe you've, you've been a believer for a time, but there's, there is a complexity to adult faith that is different than when you're a student in a college or a, you're a student in high school. Some of you, you've kind of just floated along. Faith hasn't been very central in your life, but all of a sudden, God's really showing himself to you. His word's coming alive to you. You want to engage with what he's doing. You're being more effective for the kingdom of God than you've ever been before. All of those different streams that I know are all over this room right now, I, I just want, I want to give you a little bit of a warning about where we find ourselves. Two, two warnings about opposition from the outside. And the first is just the opposition of the secular world. It's important for Christians to know that we live in a secular age. I was having a conversation just this week about Charles Taylor, who's written so much about this. A very helpful book, A Secular Age, um, that he's published about 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago now. Uh, but one of the things, he kind of starts the book saying this, is in the year 1500, it was virtually impossible to not believe in God. All of the framework around you, all of the mental framework, all of the way that people imagine the world around you in the year 1500 implied, 
a belief in God, an understanding that, that there was a God. And so the, the mental architecture, if you will, that people could hang ideas and life on implied a sense of at least deism and, and likely theism, a belief in God that we could know, right? And what he's saying, what Charles kind of Taylor explains in this book, is that now so much of the architecture, so much of the framework has changed, the, the way people formulate their ideas. And, and so increasingly, it's becoming difficult to believe in God. You're, you're having to deny, if you will, a lot of the social architecture, a lot of the social framework that is around us. So in, in some circles, here's how it's going to look. In some circles, you, the, the idea of belief in a theistic God who has spoken and revealed himself and who manifests himself in, in these magnificent ways, this is what we believe, is going to be considered at best intellectually irresponsible and at worst just kind of silly, Right? But even in other circles, uh, a, a type of faith in God will be acceptable, but it's a, it's a type of faith in God that, to quote Christian Smith, is really a, a moralistic, therapeutic deism, right? Christian Smith, in, in a book that he wrote about 15 years ago too, said that this is kind of the American understanding of God, right? It's, it's a moralistic understanding of God. We, we need some sort of moral framework. But it's not necessarily revealed morality. It's not necessarily, the, the moralism of, of moralistic therapeutic deism is not necessarily like the Bible's moralism or the morality of Jesus. It's the morality of kind of what I like to say, my Jesus. A lot of people will say this. Here's the morality that you'll see. It's, well, Jesus would never do that, right? And, 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 and the Jesus that they speak of, is nothing like, it's not a reflection at all of the Jesus that we see in Scripture. It's just kind of a, it's a my Jesus, right? My Jesus isn't like that. My Jesus, so it's a, it's a personal moralism that we've attached to some sort of higher being, right? And it's also therapeutic. People like the belief in God for a sense of therapy. You know, even people that I know uh, that are not believers, like they will say to me, I'm not a believer. But when they get into a moment of crisis, they'll ask me to pray for them. Now, what is that? Like, why would you do that? And it's because the human heart wants this kind of therapy, a therapeutic source. I can, there's something else I can do here. I'm in a moment of trial. Or, or here's what people say today. It's, it's send good thoughts, right? You hear people say this? Right, how different is that than prayer? So I'm gonna say, if you've said that, send good thoughts. What prayer is, when, when we ask people to pray for one another, what we are saying is appeal on behalf of Christ, the Son of God who's revealed himself to us. Appeal on behalf of Christ to the sovereign and powerful God of the universe that he might intervene in this crisis situation. That's what we're saying with prayer. Send good thoughts is like, send some positive energy. I mean, what is it even accomplishing? But we need therapy, right? We want some sort of, I can feel better because some people are sending good thoughts. But this is the kind of acceptable God of the day. It's a moralistic, it's a therapeutic, and then deism. It's not so much a defined God. 
as I've said before. And so for you as a Christian, if you believe in a biblical orthodoxy, if you believe in a God who's spoken, who's revealed himself that can be known, if you believe in a God that isn't just whoever you want him to be, but is who he is, in this moralistic therapeutic deism at best world or this intellectual Christianity is irresponsible world, you will face oppression. This world doesn't have the mental framework to understand your worldview, to understand why you believe what you believe. But that's not the threat that I'm most concerned with for us. You know, a changing culture, I just want you to hear this. A changing culture is no threat to your Christianity because your Christianity is not based on culture. Your faith is not in culture, right? A changing culture may be a threat to cultural Christianity, but true Christianity is not faith in a culture, it's faith in God, it's faith in Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And and this is why in environments that have had a much more opposing culture to Christ than, than Christians certainly have faced today, this is why in those environments, Christianity has thrived. Why? Because Christianity is not determined by culture. It's determined by an unchanging God. Now, a changing culture may be a threat to your comfort as a Christian. A changing culture may be a threat to uh, religious freedom that you enjoy, but it's not a threat to your Christianity. It, it, It speaks nothing to your actual faith in God. But the greatest threat that I fear is not the fear of a changing culture or even of a secular world, It is the threat of comfort and distraction. We live in an age where the thing that will oppose your effectiveness for the kingdom of Christ is your own comfort and distraction. We live in an age where there are so many things, so many distractions that could keep us away from the Lord. I mean, how hard is it to be still before the Lord? How hard is it to commune with God? How hard is it to enjoy fellowship with God and His Word? We live in an age where there's always something interesting to look at, where there's always something interesting to do. We live in an age where you can sign up for everything and have no little margin in your life for discipleship, for worship, for any sort of ministry, for any sort of outward-facing service of one another. The the thing that threatens, the the opposition that's really going to keep Christ's covenant at bay from really expanding the kingdom of Christ. It's, it's, it's not so much cultural pressure. It, it's, the, it's the threat of comfort. It's the threat of distraction. You know, Tim Alberta, who writes for The Atlantic and uh, Politico, was actually here with us in, in worship last week. And he says, you know, I, I, he's thought a lot about American evangelicalism. And he, he always says, you know, I, just when I think like American evangelicalism is 
a dying thing. He says, I come to a church like this and I'm re-energized. It's amazing. He was very encouraged by being here. He says, people, there's so much hope. They seem to be serving people. They seem to be doing ministry. They have a concern for the thing of the Lord. They're not angry. <laughs> They're joyful people. He's like, what is it? What, what, what's going on here? And he said, well, I don't, I don't know everything that's going on here, but I, I do know this. And I want to give you, I want to give a word of commendation to some of our 50 plus, 50s and up folks. It, when you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, here's the warning I would give you. It's the warning of distraction. You can say yes to everything. You know, you're, you're, there's so much around you. You're trying to get ahead in your career. You're raising kids and all these things are good and they're, they're stewardships that the Lord's giving you. But it's easy to just be so busy in your life that the next thing you know, it's 10 years later and you don't know the Lord better and you've done nothing for him. So that's a, that's a, that's a warning that I would give to my 20s, 30s, 40s folks, the, the, the threat of distraction. But my 50s plus, and this is why I'm so grateful for the 50s plus folks at Christ's covenant. I, I said, I was talking to Tim and I said, look, they're giving themselves away. They're discipling people. They're, they're investing in people that are younger than them. They're about ministry. They're not just sitting around and worrying about how bad the world's getting. They're doing something for the Lord. I said, I think that's our, that's our secret sauce. And I just want to say that to you. I, I, I commend that. You know, there's so many people that I look at, and they're in their 50s, 60s. They have more wisdom than they've ever had. They have time margin like they've never had before because kids are out of the house. They're establishing their careers. They have financial margin like they've never had before because they're establishing their careers. They're well along. And they're using all of that for small and temporal things. The oppression of comfort has oppressed their Christian effort and their effectiveness for the kingdom. And that's what I was telling them. I was like, we got some guys that are pushing against that. They're, they're actually cutting against what everyone else in their generation, a lot of the people in their generation are doing. And it's leading to a healthy church. So again, there's threats from the outside. We live in a secular world. And there's distraction and comfort all around you. But the, the other thing that we see in this passage is opposition from the inside. Look at verse 10. All of these forces are opposing the people of Israel. And we see in verse 10, it says, In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. The people begin to doubt. In chapter 3, again, it was such a magnificent chapter. They come together. They're, they're doing so well. Even the beginning of this chapter, they built half the wall. Now the pressures of this moment, it's too much for them. The people begin to lose faith. They, they begin to say, I don't know that we can do this. Can we do this? This is a good warning for us. I want to give Christ's covenant a couple of warnings about threats from the inside, opposition from the inside, if you will. It, it, we are, God is using our church. It's awesome. It's using you. You're engaging with what God's doing in our city. You're engaging with uh, disciple making. You're engaging with these things. But, but here's some things that will undo that. And the first is just a warning against the praise of men. A warning against the praise of men. Be careful of the praise of men. 
You know, when I first started off in ministry, this is a confession, right? This is not good. So I'm not, this is, what I'm saying is, is bad. When I first started in ministry, I thought, you know what? People are going to be so proud of me. You know, here I am, I'm going to be a pastor. And they'll say, man, that's a great young man. He's doing this for the Lord. And there's certainly some people did say that. But from like the first moment I stepped into pastoral ministry, you know what I got is a lot of critique from other Christians. Everybody told me like, you're bad at this, you know. You know, even, even later, I mean, this is another confession. When we left, we were in this great church in Birmingham. It was big, had a big building, big budget. We came to plant the church. And I was like, okay, well, now they'll say, man, he's got such a pure heart. He's so humble. He's going to do a, be a church planter. And even then, there was critique. Here's, the, here's what I'm trying to say. The praise of men is a mirage, Right? It's, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow. If, if, if your Christian effectiveness is based on people saying, man, that, that person's, they're really doing something for the Lord. If, you're, if your Christian effectiveness and faithfulness is based on a thank you or praise, you'll, you'll never endure. Because it's not going to last. If your Christian work is based on people actually recognizing what you're doing. It'll never last. You will give yourself to people. You will, you will pray for people. You will suffer with them. You'll pour time and energy into them, and then they'll forget about you and leave. And I'm not saying this is a bitter person at all. I, I'm, I'm not bitter about any of this, but I'm just saying it happens. The praise of men is, is fleeting. It never lasts. Now, the only thing that endures is... is the praise of God, the, the declaration of the praise of your God in heaven. And if that's not secure in your life, you're never going to last. Beware of the praise of men. It, if, if you're only doing this for the recognition of people that you respect and admire and love, it, it, you're never going to, that's an opposition that'll break you. A second warning is just a, it's a warning against kind of the hyper tribalism and competitiveness of this Christian moment we find ourselves in. Look, I, I, we are a convictional church. We are a confessional church. We make no apologies for Christian orthodoxy. And, and, and we want to be as pure in what we believe as we possibly can be. But I, I just want to say this. I never want our conviction, our love for God's word, to lead to a sense of arrogance among us. We've got it right. <laughs> well, you know what's going on over there. You know what's going on around those people. I would hope that we could be the kind of church that always celebrates what the Lord is doing in anybody's life, even if it's not quite perfect. Hopeful that God will just continue to reveal himself and show himself and bring people along. You know, there can be a lot of competition within the church. You know, people think, well, my ministry is the most important, or my ministry is the most important. It's, 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 it, whenever these things come up, I'm so grateful that the church has dealt with this before. You know, in the New Testament, Paul was obviously dealing with this. What do we see? One part of the body cannot say to another part of the body, I have no need for you, right? No, if, if the Lord is using you, praise God. And also, you know, the, this kind of tribalism or I follow this Christian leader, I follow that Christian. We see this in the New Testament too. 
1 Corinthians 3, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. I love what Paul says. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They're just little guys that God is using in an amazing way to give amazing work to. So yes, we're, we, are, we don't apologize for Christian orthodoxy. We don't apologize for being convictional people. But I pray that we would be people full of charity and hopeful to see the Lord at work in a lot more places than just Christ's covenant. <laughs> if Christ's covenant's the only effective church in Atlanta, Atlanta's in trouble. We need so much more than just what God is doing here, as amazing as it is. And then the final warning is just a warning against division. Warning against division. As, as we become more effective as God uses us to impact our city, watch out for jealousy, pride, petty divisions. And we had some new group leaders come into our elders meeting on Monday night. It was a very encouraging meeting. And, and I just want to charge all of you with, with a passage that I read to them. It's from Ephesians 4, where Paul writes, I, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And I love verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit of the bond of peace. We've got a long way to go. There's, there's a lot I want to look at next week. I, next week, what we're going to see <laughs> is that the people are building with one hand and they have a sword in another hand. There's, there's so much opposition that in order to be effective in building, they've got to be so ready for the pressures and the onslaughts on the other side. But, but this kind of brings me to the last point I want to make. And this is really where Nehemiah leaves them. All this opposition is coming from the inside and coming from the outside. And he says in verse 14, don't be afraid. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And as you build, and as you fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. What's going to make us effective? What's going to keep our faith strong? If we remember the Lord. That's why we so need this. It is so right that we are here today to worship the Lord, to remember the Lord, to remember that he's the King of kings, to remember that he's above all things, to remember his beauty, to remember his eternality, and to remember that despite all of that, as glorious as God is, he has a particular kind of love for each of you. That's an amazing thing to believe. You know, it's fall break uh, for the D's house. Our kids are out of school. So we went to a lake with some friends. We were out. The other night, we kind of took this little pontoon boat out into the lake. We're looking up. There's a million stars. It was unbelievable. And whenever I have those kind of moments, I always think of this picture. Voyager 1 took off, flip to the picture here. Voyager 1 took off in 1977. This is amazing to me. I'm from Huntsville, so I kind of geek out about space a little bit. Voyager 1 took off in 1977. Right now, it's 14 billion miles away from the Earth, which is amazing. We got a little spacecraft, 14 miles, 14 miles, 14 billion miles out there. When it was only 4 billion miles away, 
it took this very famous picture, and it's hard to see. I'm going to try to look at it from y'all's perspective. Do, do you see the little dot in the middle of it? Can y'all see that? It's hard to make out. It's like one pixel of the picture. This picture is called pale blue dot. And that pale blue dot is earth. And it's amazing to think about it. And this is just from 4 billion miles away, which is actually a relatively short distance when you consider that the universe is 95 trillion light years across, they estimate. So just from a paltry 4 billion miles away, this is what Earth looks like. Everything we've ever known, everything that's ever happened, every history we've ever studied, it's all, it's all happened on that one little pixel. And yet, the God of all of this, sovereign over everything that has been made, Lord over every square inch of that 95 trillion light year expanse, who rules and reigns over all of it perfectly. This God, who by his existence, anything that exists, exists, cares about you, is engaged in your life, loves you so much that he would send his own son to suffer in your place, would spare you from the just punishment that you deserve because of our sin against him. Who would sin against the God like this? We're crazy, but we are crazy. We've, we've fallen in love with lesser things. We've gotten focused on things that matter nothing. And yet this God is rich in mercy and grace. This God who rules over all things, this great and awesome God who rules over all things has called you to himself and has even called you to join with him in his redeeming work as he is about redeeming and renewing and restoring his creation so that his name might be known and that his glory might be realized. And if you know that, if you know that, if you know that, if you know this gospel, if you believe that, oh, you're going to be, you're going to be so effective for the Lord. The Lord is going to use your life. And so let's know this today. Let's anchor ourselves there. You know, Nehemiah wasn't the only one who was oppressed. When Jesus came, the outsiders, the Romans, they hated him. The insiders, his own people, they hated him. <laughs> Even the spiritual forces, Satan himself, they, they came against him. But he endured. And he endured with at least three things in mind. His father's will, the glory that was set before him, and his church that he would redeem. As we think about this, let's pray. Father, I, I pray for Christ's covenant that we would be a people who love you and who love this gospel. Father, that we would be a people that have ears to hear and eyes to see how great and awesome you are and how deeply you love us. And as we do, 
We pray that we would follow you in faith. We'd obey you in faith. We'd serve you in faith. So Lord, give us faith today to worship, to trust, to follow Jesus, and to build, to be a part of his kingdom work. And I pray all this in his name and for his sake. Amen.